stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, Lisbon, Portugal, and Nook, Greenland, I am your parliamentarian of the podcast, the Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. I'll tell my man to clean your kit. Don't bother. No bother. Not offering to clean it myself. Now, in this episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast, I have received a bunch of emails that I'll be getting to in just a moment. Today, I have planned for you a watch-along, a clip from the 1946 Soviet propaganda classic, Admiral Nachimov. I'm dropping a movie review on you by request. I'll be looking at the 1966 Charlton Heston classic, Cartoon. I will also be debuting a new top five and revealing the top five results from the last episode, plus a new addition to Scenario Builder. And I'll end as normal with an old time radio excavation from the past in audio archaeology. Before I get to the emails, I want to share with you that I enjoy and I get inspired by a lot of your projects. When I come upon a project that really intrigues me, I want to find out more about it, which brings me to my guest for this episode. Later, I will be joined by Craig Thompson, and you can find him at Tiny Terrain on Twitter. We'll be talking about his WW1 in Persia project. We'll be talking about painting, and we'll be talking about Back of Beyond. But first, let's do it. It's time to check the emails. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington DC calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, sir. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. All right, you can, uh, if you like, hit me up on the email. It's shotandshield at gmail.com. All you got to do is get on your computer and clickety-clickety-clickety-click uh, and uh, send me an email. Any question goes. And if I read your question on the uh, on the podcast here, it's because I think other people might get something out of it. Or if I don't, then I will answer you directly. So once again, it's shotandshield at gmail.com. All right, so let's get into it. First email from Paul in Peoria, Illinois. And he writes, I listened to your interview with Gurinder Singh Man about the Sikhs. I love the conversation you both had. However, what does the history of the Sikh have to do with wargaming? Also, I saw on Facebook that your guest said that you had interviewed Al Gore and Joe Biden. Did I miss that episode of Shot and Shield? Okay, so here we go. So the last question first. <laughs> no, you did not miss that episode of Shot and Shield. <laughs> I, I used to be in radio back in the 90s. Uh, and I've interviewed, let me tell you, I, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in my past, politicians, rock stars, actors, wrestlers, professors, coaches, athletes. I did speak to Joe Biden and Al Gore like in 92, okay? This is when I was at a news station, and it wasn't like an involved conversation where I would sit there and kind of grill them on their you know, on their political philosophy. It was more like, you know, why did you say this? Why did you say that? Why did you say this? And then they moved on to another reporter or another another interviewer. Okay, but that was like long, long time ago. And since I'm apolitical, you know, that's just the way it is. <laughs> because you interview when you're in radio and, you, and you're whatever we call it a format, whether it's a rock format or a talk format or sports format, whatever the ones that you've worked in, you're going to talk to people in that field eventually. So that's just part of the deal. And uh, 
So yeah, no, I I did, and I think the question was, and uh, Gorinder and I were talking off off air, I should say. You know, so it was off. We weren't recording at the time, and he asked me, you know, kind of the people I've interviewed in the past, and we talked about it. So that's where that came from. So <laughs> I could give you a list uh, of all the people I've interviewed, but that was another Scott and another day and a, a very, very long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So it has nothing to do with Shot and Shield. And like I said, I try to keep Shot and Shield apolitical. So there you go. And now <laughs> for the more involved question, why bring historians on the program? I, I could just say that it's called historical wargaming for a reason. And just let it go and, and walk away. But I'm, I'm not going to do that because it, it's more involved. History, in my opinion, in my opinion, history gives us context to our game. I like speaking with history experts because I believe that it can help us with our gaming. For example, Gurinder Singh Man joined me for a wonderful conversation about the Sikhs. And we did this in a bonus episode. And so all you got to do is go to the Shot and Shield page there, click it up, and uh, listen to it. If you haven't already listened to it, it's a fantastic discussion. I learned a lot about the Sikh soldier and how the British viewed the Sikh. I also learned how the Sikhs viewed themselves. Not only did I get a lot out of that conversation, but now I can translate it to our game. In most cases, we're gaming rules. Okay, check this out. The Sikhs would be considered in the rules as a regular infantry or a regular cavalry. But now that I have better context, I believe the Sikh unit should be reclassified as regular or elite. And I'll make that happen in my next game where I have a Sikh units. That's just an example. And I will tell you that there are some really good gaming podcasts out there, some really good dedicated hosts where they air all the rules and details. But for me, I like to mix it up and present a podcast that represents or attempts to, you know, who we are. We educate, we share, we mildly entertain. Having historians on, I think, just gives us context to the game we play. That's it. That's what I got. So I hope that answers your question. All right, let's move on to, let's see, email number two, Dos, uh, from JD in Norfolk, Virginia. He says, I saw a picture of your Kashkari troops, and they don't look historically accurate. Where did you get your information on this? I think I, I, think I talked about this on another episode. I'm not quite sure because I can't remember... Uh, I do these episodes one month at a time, and I want to say I answer a question like this. If I if I repeat myself, I'm sorry, and I'll make it short. Um, so look, I took some creative liberty. The Kashgari region is somewhere between Kazakhstan and China, so they're probably uh, very much like the Sarbazes of the region in various shades of red. However, I felt that there should be some Chinese influence in the troops and in the architecture. So I've used a little creative license to kind of meld the two. So it's not purely historically accurate, but I know that if I were to do them historically accurate, they probably look more uh, like the Sarvazes. So JD, I hope that answers your question. Uh, let's move on. Uh, this uh, next uh, email is from Kent in Kansas City. See, and Kent writes, I hear you talk about liking out-of-the-way war game theaters, but I never hear you talk about Africa, like Zanzibar, Madagascar, or the Congo. Yes, I do. I love out of the way, uh, out of the way wargaming theaters. Um, I'm waiting on these because I'd like to have a historian or an expert come on to discuss it. 
I don't know much about these. I know what I read on Wikipedia or in a book or something, you know, about Zanzibar and Madagascar and the Congo. But, you know, I really, you know, I really want an expert to come on here. You know, because I'm, I'm fascinated with the British uh, Zanzibar War or conflict or whatever you want to call. I mean, it only lasted, what, 39 minutes, right? And I'm fascinated with the French in like Madagascar or, J -J or Djibouti. Is that how you pronounce it? Djibouti? And the Belgians in Congo. That's just some interesting stuff right there. So yes, one of these episodes coming up, I will get into it once I find an expert or a historian to guide us through it. Okay, because I don't want to I don't want to come on here and pretend that I'm an expert on this because I'm not. So Kent, I hope that uh, answers your question uh, for you. Kent in Kansas City, thank you very much for your email. Uh, move on to the next email from Jerry in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. By the way, if you've never been to Portsmouth, it's really, really nice. It's like a little seaside town. And when you go there, you think to yourself, wow, I could write Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner right now. It's just that type of seaside community. You know what I'm saying? Especially if it gets overcast. However, I digress. Okay, so Jerry's uh, email here, uh, it reads, Scott, why are you not doing your show on YouTube like other podcasts? I haven't subscribed yet because there's not a lot of original stuff on there, just clips. All right, so I've said this uh, a, a lot, okay? I'm a sound guy, not a visual guy. So I look at the, the YouTube site for Shot and Shield as a resource more than anything else. Now, I'm, I'm going to try, I, I swear, I swear, I swear, I swear. I am going to try to bring uh, some more original content to the YouTube, so just keep watching. Um, I, look. Like I said, I have a bunch of folders on there of different interesting things that we deal with as part of wargaming. And so, I, I, like I said, I try to use it as a resource. So that's, that's why I don't. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jerry, thank you very much. And I'm glad you're uh, living in Portsmouth and enjoy, enjoy that town. It's a really nice little town. And uh, next email, this one is from Alan in San Diego. Another YouTube question. Uh, Alan says, I was on the YouTube page and I saw this thing you were doing called Ram Stammer. Are you going to do any more? You know, Alan, I also got, uh, if you go to the YouTube page, um, I did get a comment there. Somebody suggesting that it was sort of like a Russian flashman. Uh, but so look, uh, sadly, probably not. I, I just don't have the time. I, it, I have the whole story in my head. I just don't have the time to put it on paper and then produce the audio. It is, uh, it, you know, if you've listened to it, I thank you very much. If you've enjoyed it, I thank you very much. But <laughs> I just, I don't have, there's not enough time in the day. So I'm so sorry, uh, Alan, uh, that uh, that's not going to take place. So, I, But I appreciate the love for it. And we're going to do one more, one more email, uh, our sixth email of the day. Usually I only do a few of them, but I got a lot of questions here and people were like really asking some interesting questions I thought you might have also, and I wanted to answer them. Uh, <laughs> this one, this one is from Arthur in Chicago. And Arthur in Chicago, he writes, Scott, I'm really liking the program, which I really appreciate. He continues, please keep up the great work. Again, thank you very much. Arthur continues, I was wondering if you could help me. I was thinking about starting a podcast also. What are some of the pitfalls you've run into that I need to watch out for? Also, what's the pay range? Uh, <laughs> some of the pitfalls you're going to run into, uh, there, Arthur is uh microphone because you need to have a decent microphone. I have a decent microphone, not a great one, but I do have a decent one. Um, also, 
Um, you have to really do all your prep. You have to prep, 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 and prep. Uh, your show is not going to be decent or even uh, listenable if you don't prepare ahead of time. If you just kind of get on there with the microphone and think you have something to say and say it, uh, it's usually not going to do very well. That's just, that's not you. That's just the way uh, the world works. Whenever you hear somebody get on a microphone and they start rolling, you could tell whether they're uh, prepared or whether they're not. That's, it's easy. Another thing you have to do is you have to balance your time. Um, I have a full-time job. I have a family. I like to do my painting and everything. And I love doing this podcast. So in the end, you really have to just balance, balance your time. It's not easy at all. Did I say prepare? <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure I said prepare. You got to prepare. Okay, you got to really be prepared. Uh, the other thing uh, that you have to have to watch out for is don't pretend that you know everything. Like, look, I don't know. I don't know a lot. I know some stuff. I'm some stuff I'm informed on. Um, my, my schooling is history based, but you know what? Some of the guests I've had on here are telling me stuff I've never heard before and I'm enthralled. So you have to be curious and you have to not take yourself so seriously and you have to be okay uh, taking criticism and you have to be okay not being an expert. As far as the pay range, <laughs> it's zero. That's what the pay range is. The pay range is zero. I pay $19.99 to captivate to host the podcast. And I pay $6.99 for a bunch of rights fees for musics and, and pieces and clips and stuff like that. So that's, so it's costing me. But it, you know what, whatever. You know, if you hear, if you end up hearing a, a couple of uh, sponsors or you hear commercials or something like that, uh, that's all just going to to support the cast, not put any money in my pocket. So if, that's if you hear those. But regardless, uh, it's irrelevant to me because I'm doing this for the love of it. I'm not doing this for the cash. It's not a cash grab. So if you hear a podcaster talked about all the money he's making, uh, you need 5 billion subscribers and you need to have a, a big monster host like CBS or NBC. But you know what? For this one right here, no. No, no, it's for the love of the game. It's for the love of the game. So if you're going to do a podcast, you got to do it because you love it or it's not going to be worthwhile. You're going to get sick of it and you're going to be like just bored with it. That's just, that's just the way it is. And can I tell you, this as a note, that's the way it was in radio too. You had to, you had to love talking to people. You had to love playing music or you had to, had to love uh, getting in, involved with things. You know, if you did it just for the money or for the fame or for whatever, uh, that was the wrong reason, and you blew you blew yourself up. I've seen so many people burn out because of that. I hope that helps you there, Arthur, in Chicago. I appreciate you listening. Now, still ahead on the Shot and Shield Supercast, we're going to Scenario Build. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I, too, dream of peace. You don't think I, too, yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, Shot and Shield at gmail.com email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read 
and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. It's time to get pencil and paper ready. Get out your notebook. Get out your pen. Get out your pencil. Sharpen it. Be ready. It's time for Scenario Builder. Building better worlds. Yes, it is time for Scenario Builder. And today's Scenario Builder is called Methinks It's Time to Fire the King. Listen, in the bonus episode, the interview with Gurinder Singh Man, he told us about a king who was being fired. You know what? Here, l- listen. Here's a snippet of what we were talking about regarding the Second Anglo-Sikh War. The actual Second Sikh War actually starts some far, some distance away from the key main centers of Lahore and Amritsar and other Punjab territories. It actually takes place in a place called Multan. And it's actually a Hindu ruler there by the name of Divan Mulraj. And what actually happens is two British officers are there to actually relieve him of his duties. They've been sent by the Lahore Dabar or the Punjab or Sikh Dabar to actually relieve him of his duties. During that time, these two British officers are killed. And what happens then is uh, small forces are sent to actually kind of quell the disturbance. But the disturbance gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Let me go back to something you said earlier about, uh, so you have these two representatives going to tell a king, it's not your job anymore. How does that happen? I, I, well, you know, well, <laughs> and well, how does that happen? I, I think in, in, in history, that's never ended well. Okay, I'm going to cut it off right there. So you can hear that. I mean, it, it, please go, go back and listen to that episode because there are so, it's so rich with information. Gurinder Singh Man is titled, Shot and Shield bonus with Gurinder Singh Man. Okay, just go and listen to it again. As for the scenario, this is where I got the idea for the scenario. Methinks it's time to fire the king. This is going to be a very simple game. You're, and as you know, I use the men who would be kings rule set. So here's what you got. Your European field force is given 36 points. No artillery. Your tribal field force is given 24 points. It's a simple game. The European field force has to travel to the middle of the table to a mansion or a palace or a government house, capture the king, and escort him off the table where he will take a ship back to the, a European capital to be educated and rub elbows with high society, always thinking about the kingdom he left behind. But the, the rub here is that the travel field force doesn't have to guard the king. They just have to prevent the king from leaving the table. You, you feeling me? So the European field force, without the artillery, has to roll in, get the king, get out. And the tribal field force, can they can stop him one inch into uh, them traveling to the mansion. They can stop him one inch from coming back with the king. Either way, the king's not going to die. The king is like, a, he's, you can fire, you can have all kinds of shots all the way around him, and it ain't going to happen. He, he's, he's there. He's protected. So that's it. Very simple scenario builder today. Methinks it's time to fire the king. All right, coming up, Craig Thompson is going to join me next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, damn. So I'm going to get a little serious for a second. If you're like me and you're disturbed by what's going on in Ukraine and you're thinking, what can I do? This happens a lot when the world is faced with tragedies like this. You and I have friends in Ukraine fellow gamers, artists, sculptors, businesses that we've come to know over the years. And outside of wishing them well and hoping they are safe, 
there are ways you can help. For instance, UNICEF has set up a site to help children. Nova Ukraine helps with humanitarian aid. There is doctorswithoutborders.org, rescue.org, and icrc.org, all of whom are helping people in Ukraine. The one which I most admire is World Central Kitchen, wck.org. They've helped in Haiti, in the Middle East, in Asia, anywhere where people need food. And they're set up right now in Ukraine and around Ukraine to help. I'm not using this platform to ask you to help. I'm using this platform to provide you information if you decide you want to help. Hey, what the blaze is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. Nice punch. This is Shot and Shield. And shield. Thank you for listening to the Shot and Shield Supercast. And in this segment, I wanted to talk a little about painting, a little bit about Back and Beyond, and a little bit about uh, this gentleman's uh, current project. I will say that if you are on Twitter or you are on the uh, Shot and Shield Wargame podcast group, you have seen some of his work. And if you're like me, you're like drooling because it is outstanding. It is magnificent. And as, um, as you know, uh, I like to have uh, different voices on uh, the show to talk about either their projects or anything that they have going on. And so I would like to welcome Craig Thompson. His Twitter is at Tiny Terrain. And uh, thank you for uh, jumping on and uh, having a conversation with me today. No, thank you for the invite. It's good to be here. I just want to get right into it. I want you to tell me about your current project. (laughs) So last year, I set myself the task of painting a new army every month, which I managed to do. And this year, I've done completely the opposite. And I said, I want to do one project for the whole year. I'm going to totally immerse myself in one project. And I decided to go for World War I in Persia and Dunster Force. So... Rather than do World War I uh, in France or one of the other perhaps better known theatres, I thought I've already got a lot of terrain for the Middle East that's suitable. Um, I've not done this era before. Let's really get involved and do something that isn't just British or French versus German. It's got some Turks, it's got some Persian uh, local forces, it's got some flavour and something a little bit different. So, yeah, all of this year, World War I in Persia. Can you explain Dunster Force to me? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm actually. I, I see that, and I read enough history, but Dunster Force. I, that's a that was that's been a new one to me these last uh, few years. Mm. So, um, quick history lesson. So you had Persia was split in two by the Brits and the Russians in 1907, and essentially the north of Persia was for the for the Russians, and the south was for the Brits. And what happened was when the Russian Revolution happened, the Russians pulled out of Persia and pulled out of World War I, in fact, and it left this big gap. And the Brits were very concerned that the Turks, the Germans could come through Persia and into India. So they sent off three missions uh, to try and stabilize the region. One was a pure spying mission, uh, and that was to find out what the Russians were really doing, whether they were... Um, you know, leaving the area or not, or whether they still had interest and whether they were going to try and access British in India. 
the second mission was really to find out about um, the the Turks and what their intentions were. They were very worried about the Turks and their access to um, the oil fields in Baku and the Caspian Sea. And then the third mission was this guy called Lionel Dunster, which is why it's called Dunster Force. And he was tasked with traveling from Baghdad all the way to um, Tbilisi in modern day Georgia. And along the way, gathering disaffected Russian troops, Armenians, local forces, and training them and getting them to be a cohesive force that could stop any attempt from either the Russians or the Ottomans coming down through Persia and into, into India. I'm sorry, when we're talking mm. Persia, yeah, we're actually talking Baghdad to Tbilisi. Yeah, I mean, Persia itself is modern-day Iran. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you, strictly speaking, Persia is just Iran. But actually, my area of interest covers everything really from yeah Baghdad all the way up to Georgia through uh, Turkmenistan, Turkestan, Afghanistan, uh, Armenia, uh, you name it. All those places which you'd struggle to pinpoint on a map. That's the bit I'm interested in. When you put together your armies, and this is this is what I found really interesting, is when I was seeing uh, your Twitter feed and all the different panels and all the different uh, figures that were putting up there, you're putting your pictures up there. I noticed that once you had finished the bulk of your armies, the regular the regular forces of, of British, the regular forces of the Ottomans, then you started working on flavor pieces. When I sit down to do work on my Russian colonials, mm-hmm. all right, I'm going to have 50 or 60 of these guys in these white tunics as a, as a painter, I'm just I'm just painting them out. And then once I get all of those 50 or 60 or whatever, however many done, then I sit back and then I spend time on the command stand. And then I spend mm-hmm. time on an observation stand or a rocket stand or something like that. The, the flavor of the piece. So when on the war game table, you're going to have all your troops and everything for your game. But at the same time, folks look at this, this game, they're, they're seeing the troops they're seeing everything, but they're also seeing the flavor of the game. Yeah. Okay. And that's what really attracted me to your project because now that you have your your army set, you've been working on your flavor force. Can you yeah. talk, talk, talk talk about some of the flavor stuff you've been putting together? So the way I look at this, uh, yeah, I, as it was a completely new era, I didn't have any troops at all. Uh, the way I wanted to do this was to start off with uh, enough troops of of two opposing sides so I could have a game. And to me, it didn't really matter whether that was one unit of British, one unit of Turks and some support. As long as I'd got something I could put on the table to keep my interest, that was the most important thing. Uh, And what I did was, if I had to sit and paint 50 or 60 miniatures all the same, frankly, I'd lose interest. So I'd I'd do a unit um, of 10 men, I'd get them to the best standard I could paint them, and then I'd take a break and and paint something that's got some flavour to it, whether that's a sniper team, an artillery piece, something that I knew ultimately I'd want in the force, but maybe wasn't going to be useful immediately. By doing that, I very quickly got through three standard units of Brits and, of course, matching that three support pieces. And on the other side, three units of, of Ottomans and three support pieces. So you're building your flavor pieces up almost as you go. And you know, some of the flavor pieces, it could be something as simple as an objective marker. You know, um, I did a, a couple of local Persians with uh, an ox carrying some loads, just right. something that I could put on the table it's a break from painting that constant beige or khaki color um, with a few details. Something a bit colorful keeps my interest. Frankly, keeps your hand and your eye fresh as well. If you have a break for a couple of days doing something different, 
and it looks lovely on the table. And then you find after, after two or three months, you've got quite a substantial force for both sides. You can have a reasonable game and you've got some of those flavor pieces ready done. That's a, that's a great technique that just that right there. Cause I, as a painter, I sit down and I go, okay, like I work on my Kashkari force. Okay. Mm-hmm. I need 30 figures. All right. Yep. And, that, and then I just, I just buckled down. I pound them out. I'm satisfied with them. And then it's like, okay, cool. Now I can, now I can spend time on, and then I spend all that time that you, I like the way you do that. You break it up. So you're mm-hmm. going to do 10 figures, regular forces, and you're going to do a flavor piece, maybe 10 more figures, regular forces. I'm now going to steal that. Along the same lines, you know, breaking up with terrain pieces, if you're doing a completely new period, or even if you just want to expand your collection of buildings or terrain, breaking up the monotony with a small terrain piece, it might just be a, a barn or a well or something, just to, just to break that monotony. And suddenly you've got another piece for your table, another objective, another something to fight around. Uh, keeps it interesting. Let's diverge a little bit. Let's 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 go to uh, your painting style. This is mm. the other thing that I really I really found interesting. So you put I'm gonna ca- I call them panels, and it's a little picture of maybe maybe two or three pictures of the figure in different states of painting, mm-hmm. and then you have in that same panel you have a list of of some of the the colors that you've been using. And that is, that's really nice for someone who's painting to look at and say, Oh, you know what? I love the way the color looks. I want to use some of the same colors because I, as, as a, as that guy, I've already stole maybe two or three of those colors from you. Good. But the, <laughs> but the, but the one thing that I noticed, and you've mentioned this a lot in those panels is a wash. Yeah. Okay. So in my experience, I've done a dry wash and I've done a black wash. So mm-hmm. what I'll do with the dry wash is if I want to make my figures look a little more dusty, then, you know, grab some, grab some khaki, throw it on the paintbrush and then just get that paintbrush to where it's nothing but dust and, exactly. and, 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 and highlight, you know, the beards or some of the, some of the darker colors that way, or with the black wash, wet down my, uh, my licorice color, my black, as much as possible to where once I get wash them, once I once I paint them, that the it's going to darken up maybe the brighter colors and give those lighter colors a highlight. You're yeah. using a different sort of wash, at least it seems that way. Yeah, yeah so I'd so like I, you to talk about that a little bit. So I use two different types of wash. One is um, let, let's take the the easiest one yeah. on something like uh, tribesmen or militia, something that typically is quite colorful. I'll actually paint them white or a light beige color as a, as a primer. And then I will only use washes to paint them. So I won't apply any, you know, if I wanted to do a red tunic, what I would do is paint it white and then put a red wash over that white. So the red falls into the creases and gives the shade. And obviously the raised areas have the highlight. And I might apply one or two or even three washes depending on how deep i want the color that's one type of wash and i typically would use that on bright colors so reds greens blues yellows those kind mm-hmm. of things the second type of wash is more like the one you're talking about where i want to add some shadow and definition to a color like a khaki and in that case and i'll take the ottomans i'm painting for example here i spray them all a a, a sandy beige color and i apply to that a, a sepia wash over everything and that darkens it down and goes into the crevices the one thing i do maybe that other people don't always do is once i've washed the figure uh, i will then go back in and highlight those areas with a color so mm-hmm. i'll give you an example if i'm painting a leather bag i'll paint it brown i'll then put a darker brown wash on 
and then I'll go back in with the original color and just touch up some of the highlights to give a yeah a, a bit more definition. I, I like the the outcome of that. I really do. Thank it you. Just, it just because um, I'll sit down myself. I will paint everything right out of the pot. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then I'll go back and then I'll do highlights with one or two a filament brush. Like yep. literally, I I'll take a brush and I will cut it down until it's one or two threads, and then go back through and do eyes and do do crevices and stuff like that. It takes forever. Yeah, and um, my eyes aren't what they used to be. To be honest, it came about for me because. As I said last year, I was trying to paint a thousand point bolt action army a month, which is about 50 figures in a month with some support. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't spend that much time doing three highlights or lots of shading. Um, so a quick wash. And you have to remember for most of us, it's three foot away on a table. It's not, you're not inspecting it right up close. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of course, like everybody, when I photograph them, I make sure they've got good lighting and I do a little post-production afterwards. And, <laughs> and it's always yeah, this... the best figures. It's never the one with yeah. the wonky eyes. Exactly. <laughs> so you, yeah, you're seeing, you're seeing the better end of things. There is a whole <laughs> load, which aren't quite. <laughs> but yeah, um, it, it works for me. And I would say the most important thing for me is, and this is how the panels came about is keeping a painting diary. Um, just mm. noting Whenever you're painting something, you know, even down to, hey, I want to do aged wood. I have a, a book. I can just go straight to it, look at it and go, ah, aged wood. It's this color brown with this highlight on top of it and this wash. There's no experimenting. It means if I go back and I want to paint something to match something I did two or three years ago, I just go to the book. Okay, how did I how did I paint the British? Ah, it was this with this and that. Uh, and that saves you all that trying to match colors by eye and mm-hmm. hey, what color did I use? And oh my God, you know, I can't quite remember. Um, so that's why I started doing the panels because I was writing it in longhand and I thought the time it's taking me to write this, I could just drop a couple of pictures onto a right. on, on, in, in Photoshop and actually show people what it looks like rather than just, uh, hey, this is Valio, uh, you know, black gray, for example. Right. Well, I, you know, it's interesting that you say that's a great tip um, and, and make notes about that because I will sit there literally, I'll paint, I'll go, okay, I'll come back to these guys later. Mm. And then maybe four months later, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get back into these. Oh, what would I use for this red? What shade of red did I use? And then yeah. I'm driving myself nuts. So, so that's, that's a great tip also is to make those notes. And you know what, we're probably talking about stuff that other other painters and other guys listening right now are like, you guys, really? You guys coming up on us? No, I, I, absolutely. Yeah. There's plenty of people who keep painting diaries. There's plenty of people who use washes. Um, it's nothing new. Um, mm. I've, you know, I've not come up with something <laughs> outstanding here. It's just I've kind of fallen upon it. I've been painting now for 20, 25 years. So, yeah. Over time, you get your own style, you get your own way of working. And I found something that seems to work for me. So I stick with it. It's funny as I've been painting just as long, but this is the this is the first I've heard with washes like that. In my collection, I've probably got as many different wash colors as I have solid paint colors. That's how often I use them. So right now on Shot and Shield, we're speaking with Craig Thompson. His Twitter feed is at Tiny Terrain. You want to check it out because he has some fantastic uh, panels up there regarding his project, World War One in Persia and the Dunster Force. And you can also, because I've I've asked Craig to do this, and he's he's reluctantly 
reluctantly <laughs> agreed to put a bunch of his panels on the Shot and Shield Wargaming podcast group uh, site where I'm going to pin it um, for you so you can see some of the examples of what we're talking about here today. The other thing I wanted to talk about, um, and the reason I, I'm going to be doing this uh, throughout the next uh, few episodes of Shot and Shield, the next few uh, supercasts, is uh, talking to folks like yourself about Back of Beyond. Now, the thing with Back of Beyond, whenever I look online or I look at uh, I look at some of the great pieces and the great games that we've seen online, whether it be on Twitter or Facebook or wherever or Instagram, the majority of that is Soviet, Mongolian, Chinese, maybe Tibetan. Boom, that's it. Yep. If that were the case, then why call it Back of Beyond? And not just Russian Civil War or or something that in, in that in that framework. So I just wanted to get a perspective on what is your view of what Back of Beyond is. Hmm. So this is kind of how I ended up doing World War One in Persia because I decided I wanted to take a big project on. I looked at what I got and I thought, well, you know, back end of last year I'd been painting some modern, relatively modern. Um, us forces for vietnam and i've got a jungle built and other things and i thought well that would be a good thing to do i could do some back of beyond i've got the jungle i've got some huts you know that would be a good starting point and i looked at it and i thought yeah back of beyond what, what is back of beyond and like you i you can get a definition but it doesn't really get the flavor of the period or what it is and i thought you know what i don't want to just do russians versus chinese or russians versus japanese or whatever to me I wanted to do something that had a bit more flavor to it. Um, and I think people tend to go down the back of beyond being Russia and China and Tibet, because frankly, that's what's in the market. You know, if you look at it, you can go and buy your Russian figures, you can buy your Chinese bandits, you know, there's, there's plenty of model makers out there doing suitable terrain. If you said to somebody, okay, what models are you going to use for Armenians? Uh, right okay <laughs> right, it's a bit right. more tricky um now that and that you know to... just as a note real quick that's not to take away from the no, russians no, no, and, the, and, the, and the and mongolians or tibetans or, or chinese at all is just kind of defining what the whole idea of back of beyond is in your mind you've you've said you know what world war one in persia at the back end of world war one because it's it's not just 1917 but it's 1917 through past uh, Versailles. Yeah, I think I, I wanted something that was accessible, but um, I also wanted to start, do something that was different. You know, we've all seen 101 World War One games in the trenches in, in Northern Europe. Um, we've all seen Gallipoli, you know, but I wanted to do something where I could grab a box of Perry tribal militia and build them and do them in crazy colors, or I could do, you know, include some Russians if I wanted to, some Cossacks. Um, because they were in uh, Persia. But I wanted the option as well to say, well, yeah, okay, Persia itself is there, but this goes all the way through up through you know, Georgia and into the, the southern edges of Russia um, yeah, and, and beyond. So at the moment, I'm focused on World War I in Persia. Ask me again by September, October, November, and I've kind of exhausted what I'm doing uh, in Persia. I could be almost anywhere post 1918 uh in the back of beyond currently my project is russian colonial turkmenistan kazakhstan yeah. the igars afghanistan great game uh -huh. and that's my current project here and i was thinking this is what happened all right so christmas comes around right 
as it does mm-hmm. every year. And my wife knows that I want to, I want a really nice map of Asia for mm-hmm. my studio. And so she got me this fantastic map of the Citrian expedition. Yeah. Okay. I think it's like 1933. I have it in back of me because probably in, in the video mm. that we have, which you'll never see because I don't do video, but you know, Craig here, he sees it. Yep. You know, so there it is. I went back and I did some research mm-hmm. just to see kind of what the whole deal was. At the same time, I have a ton of Turkmenis. I have a, a ton of, of Kazakhs, Central Asian tribes throughout the throughout my whole litany of, of figures. Is this going to be it? Is this going to be my project and that's going to be it? Or is there anything else? All of a sudden I thought, well, you know what? If I wanted to do a pulp game, yep. you know, I grab five, uh, five or 10 of these Citrion half tracks mm-hmm. and I, I could do something. And then yeah. I thought, well, isn't this back of beyond also? And yes, I mean, I... I jokingly said it before, but for me, back of beyond is is all those places we can't pronounce and we don't know where where they are on the map, you know. And it's that's the bit that interests me is finding out about those really unusual local tribes or the, the colours they wore, the customs, whatever it may be, and incorporating that into those small flavour pieces. So you end up with not just a row of Brits and no flavour and it's all khaki and, and brown and green, but you've got some of those specialist troops some of those um you know local militia and those kind of things where you've got the color and the flavor and you know giving them house rules so that they act a little differently from you know your your russian forces or whatever it may be you know that that to me is all part of back of beyond and i don't think you have to limit that to a jungle in southeast asia for it to be valid i think it's just as valid to be halfway up a mountain in afghanistan or, or wherever it's what about okay? So let's let's say this. What about non-Asian? Could that be counted as back and beyond? Like I, I'll give you an example. Like uh, I was, uh, I saw a documentary about the new Silk Road, uh, and it was about China's expansion into the world. Mm-hmm. They had three places they were at. One of them was in Afghanistan. The other one was in Djibouti. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So Djibouti and the French. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this not back of beyond? This is this it sounds just like it in the in the the late 20s into the 30s. You have a European force in an, just a beyond country that's that's hard to pronounce. Why would not that not count? For me, I think you can call whatever you want back of beyond, you know, whether it is something in the jungles of South America, whether it's something in Central Africa. Um, even you know, polar, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it's being, as you said, beyond, perhaps beyond the norms, beyond what we normally think of in geographic terms, and some of those unusual, either real things that happened, or even the, let's call it imaginations, the, the kind of things that could happen, or hey, wouldn't it be interesting to try gaming this? I think as long as it's in maybe a less recognizable place, for me, it's back of beyond. So regarding back and beyond and the World War One in Persia that you're currently working on your project, mm-hmm. when you're finished with that project, what's the next step? You know, is it what are you taking this to a convention? Are you, you know, is it just something for your local group? Do you know what? I don't actually know at this stage. I mean, I've done I've done a number of gaming shows over the years and put on demo games. Uh, they've to date have all been modern games because that's my background. You know, I, I game and um, we sell modern figures, but I'm quite comfortable doing demo games. And yeah, I may well take it to some UK shows. 
but this project really is for me. It's because mm -hmm. I wanted to do something different. Um, I don't regularly attend a gaming club. Um, I would class myself as a painter and a terrain maker first and a gamer second. So I love playing a game, but actually I get much more enjoyment out of um, painting something or creating a unique terrain piece. I, I love doing stuff that people haven't got. I love the idea of me creating something that I know it's a conversion or it's a bespoke piece that nobody else in the world has got the same as me. And I've created something that is absolutely for that particular um, situation or scenario. Well, I have to tell you, you have done that, at least for me, because uh, the work that you're doing for the uh, WW1 in Persia and your panels and your painting um, have been spectacular. It's been inspiration, truly inspiration, uh, because now I sit back and think, oh, man, I'm going to try these washes. I got some good. Oh, thank I got, you. Yeah, I got some uh, I got some uh, troops that I'm working on that uh, I'm going to put I'm going to try that wash uh, uh, deal out on. Craig, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate you coming on Shot and Shield. No, it's been great and thank you. It's been uh, it's been good to be part of it. I I listen to you when I'm painting, so it's great to be part of it. <laughs> so so you're so you're you're doing exactly what the podcast is meant to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Outstanding. I'm <laughs> successful. <laughs> uh Craig, hey, uh, my brother uh, I, I do appreciate uh, I do appreciate you coming on and doing this with me. Uh, and thank you for the podcast because it's uh, for me it's been an inspiration as well to be able to listen to what other people are doing and, and hear about some of the things I know nothing about because this whole era is completely new to me. So yeah. settling down to listen to uh, you know, I, I listened to your podcast the other evening uh, talking about the Sikhs and the Indian Army and so on. Fascinating, a whole era I knew nothing about. That's absolutely excellent. I know. Um, Gurinder Singh Man will be ex excited to hear uh, that because uh, he works really hard um, to bring the Sikh information out to the peoples. And uh, Craig, again, thank you for coming on. Craig Thompson on Shot and Shield. Now, still ahead, we're going to combine a top five and a watch along. Scott has gone crazy. This is Shot and Shield. Hallyho, Pip-Pip-Bum, Bernard's your uncle. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. I'm waiting for an explanation. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. It looks bad in the newspapers and upset civilians at their breakfast. This is Shot and Shield. for listening to the Shot and Shield Supercast. As you may know from previous episode, the top five question was, what was the most significant naval battle of the 19th century? 
Now, one of the selections was the Battle of Sinope in 1853, just before the Crimean War. The Turks found themselves outgunned and outmatched by a slightly more modern Russian Navy outside of the Turkish port of Sinope. The Battle of Sinope is the subject of today's watch-along. If you go to the Shot and Shield YouTube page, this is what you need to do. Look for the watch-along folder and find a clip entitled Battle of Sinope. The clip itself is from the 1946 Soviet propaganda film classic called Admiral Nachimov, who led the attack on the Turks. So I'll give you a second to uh, find that. Remember, it's YouTube. You're looking for a page or a folder in the playlist called Watch Along Folder, and you're looking for the title called Battle of Sinope. You know, you go look for it. I'll put on some coffee. Do, 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 do. Okay, all right, so on the count of three, we're going to hit play together, all right? One, two, three. All right, so right now you see a bunch of Russian drummers busting out the paradiddles. I used to drum, that's how I know. And now you got the Russian uh, gun crews. They're preparing the. They're preparing the cannons. <laughs> Running around with their mop buckets. Got to make sure the, the the plungers are up against the wall. Hut 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 hut. Everybody's ready. Nice. All right. They're all they're they're set. They're ready. They're ready to go. You can tell. They're all standing at attention. <laughs> hey dude, we're locked and loaded. Tell the boss. I guess that's uh Nabichov there. I got to tell you, in this clip here, the sailors, uh, the sailor uniforms for the Turks are actually pretty well done. Uh, take a look at them here in a second. Right now, you're just seeing a bunch of uh, ships with the uh, Turkish flag. But look at the soldiers, uh, the sailors and stuff. It's really very baggy. They got the mismatched uh, uh, cl clothes, the mismatched outfits, uh, baggy pants, the fez. Nice. Well done. The Turk officers, they're, they're properly attired as well. And Pasha, <laughs> Pasha Admiral, he looks happy. He, he probably is thinking to himself, I got the Russians right where he wants them. <laughs> where did these Russians come from? All right, they're coming in my, my, neighbor, my neighborhood. All right, so the fort, it starts firing. Again, the, the, the Turk uniforms in this are actually pretty good. Some attention to detail from uh, 1946. Admiral Pasha says fire. So all the, the Turkish ships are starting to fire. Not doing much uh, against the Russians. They're a little outranged. You know what I'm saying? And if I remember correctly, that was the problem, the range. Russian cannons had better range. And, you know, that, therefore, the, the, the Turks are going to get uh, pummeled 
you know, pretty good uh, while the Russians sit safely outside the danger zone, you know? Oh, here we go. Now the Russians start their salvo. And let me tell you, they're really laying it on the Turks, too. And this, you know it's Soviet propaganda. They're really laying it on. The Russian uniforms look pretty good here, too. I mean, it's black and white, but you know what you're going to do. And this, by the way, if you're looking, you're watching this, this Russian gunner, this guy's doing it for Mother Russia. Look at him. You got to look at him. He's into it. He's aiming. He's ready to go. I mean, the, the models uh, they, they used for this are actually pretty good. There's this Russian gunner. From Mother Russia. Boom. <laughs> He's into Bam. He's the one guy. He's bringing down everybody. Man, the Turks are just taking it on the chin right now. Uh, did I say I really like the Turkish outfits in this? But yeah, the, the Turks are just taking a beating right now. Oh. Nab Nabokov or Nab Nabamov? Nachamov? He's like, lay it on, lay it on, boys. Well, they just lost another one. That's what he's saying. Ooh. Brutal. Turkish fleet, uh, <laughs> the Turkish fleet is uh, finding a new home for wayward fishes and crustaceans in the waters of Sinope. The admiral there, he's pretty, he's pretty happy. Ah, you guys, uh, you can't, uh, you can't sail. Here's that Russian gunner again, doing it for Mother Russia. so intense on pulling that cord of that pulling the cord of that cannon just intense and the you know really i mean if you're if you're watching this you know like i said the the models on the that they did here is very very good i mean yeah the uh the turks here are not faring very well pasha admiral he's not he's not a happy man right now Something that's weird. You got all these uh, Turkish guys jumping off, uh, jumping off the boat into the water, and then you got the one guy who can't swim. Isn't that like if you're going to be a sailor, shouldn't you know how to swim? I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know. I've never been. Oh, cue the patriotic Russian music. As fire and smoke come from the Turkish fleet as those ships slowly sink into the Black Sea. Slowly, slowly. And Admiral Nachimov watches and thinks about, thinks about how good he did and how the Russian czar is going to love him. 
Then they blow up the fort. You know, here's here's in the film clip, the Russians actually land in Sinope. Did that happen? I, I don't I don't know if that happened. I I wasn't really I, I didn't realize that they did that. If they did, I'm surprised they gave it up because I would have uh, put a lot of a lot of folks there and prevented uh, Turkey from, you know, coming back. But uh, Nachimov here is. Yes, the captured Pasha Admiral who's handing over his sword. <sighs> Poor guy. Got a feel for him. But they, they have respect for each other, you know? So there you go. That was, uh, that was the Battle of Sinope, uh, 30th November, 1853, from the 1946 Soviet propaganda film classic, Admiral Nachimov. Um, and this ends another watch along. Just a note. After the uh, victory of Sinope, Nachimov, he commanded the garrison under the, during the siege of Sevastopol. So, that, you know, this guy's been around, and he'll continue to be around because that's, that's what he does. Uh, at the Battle of Sinope, the Russians had three ships with 120 guns, three ships with 84 guns, a 54-gun and a 44-gun frigate, and a few odd ships. The Turks, on uh, their part, had two 44-gun uh, frigates, one 62-gun, one 60-gun, one 58-gun, and one 56-gun frigate, plus a few odd ships as well. So you can see the Turks are really outgunned here, and uh, the Russians had a slight technical advantage with the range of uh, their cannon, uh, which obviously led to their victory. I think also with the, with the Russian ships, I thought, and I could be wrong, Somebody please correct me if I am. But I think the Russian ships, they, they had a, a plate, a brass or a steel or a copper plate over top of the, the wood planks that held the ship together, that formed the ship. So anyway, so I thought that, you know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of technology for that time period that the uh, Turks were facing. You know, the Turks at this time, you know, the old man of Europe, there, there wasn't a lot of techno, uh, technological advantage that was going on. So anyway, so let's get back and unveil the results of last month's top five, because I think that's really important. Now that we've watched one of these, these battles in play, let's see how the Battle of Snope fell in last month's top five. And the Lord spake, saying, shalt thou count to three? No more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. It is time for the top five reveal. Five is right up. So last month's top five, or last episode's top five, however you want to look at it, the question was, what was the most significant naval battle of the 19th century, as voted on by you, the Shot and Shield listener? Number five. The Battle of Sinope, 1853, the Crimean War. Number four. The Battle of Manila Bay, 1898, Spanish-American War. Number three. The Battle of Lissa, 1866, the Third Italian Unification. Number two. The Battle of Port Arthur, 
Russia-Japanese war, right? By the way, I got a comment. Somebody asked me why this counted as the 19th century. The 19th century is sort of a weird thing because essence of the 19th century started in 1815 when Napoleon went away. And then it kind of ended around 1914 at the beginning of World War I. So there you go. That's, that's why it, it's in there. It's considered sort of a 19th century type of conflict. I digressed. And now, voted number one as the most significant naval battle of the 19th century by you, the Shot and Shield listener. The Battle of Hampton Roads, the Monitor versus the Merrimack, are the first clash of modern vessels. So congratulations. There we go. So I want to thank all of you who voted. Later in the show, I will reveal a new top five. Coming up, movie review on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. Shot and Shield. What are you looking at? It's time for Shot and Shield movie review. It is that time, time for a movie review. So in this episode, I take a look at the 1966 colonial classic, Cartoon, with Charlton Heston, Lawrence Olivier, and Richard Johnson. If my life has a single point, it's this. I've learned to be unafraid of death, but never to be unafraid of failure. If by the act of surrendering my life, I can bring down the world on your head, then it's an arrangement I welcome. Now, if you've done any colonial wargaming, then you already know this movie. But I got, I got a, a bunch of requests saying, hey, why don't you do Khartoum? So I got to please the peoples. And you're the peoples. I got to please you. But anyway, so I, I, besides, I, I try to take the movie reviews and put some wargame context in there. So obviously, this is not me sitting there going, okay, so uh, thumbs up or thumbs down, blah, 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 blah. Right? I ain't Siskel. I ain't Ebert. I'm not either of them or both of them wrapped up into one Scott. All right. So let's do this. Now, obviously, you're aware of the, of the movie's synopsis. An Egyptian army commanded by British officers is annihilated in a battle in the Sudan in the 1880s. The British government is in a dilemma. It does not want to commit a British military force to a foreign war. But they also have a commitment to protect the Egyptians in Khartoum. They decide to ask a general, Charles Chinese Gordon, here played by Charlton Heston, who doesn't even try to have a British accent. Just put it out there. If you, as a servant of your God, must use 100,000 warriors to destroy me, a solitary servant of my God, then you whisper to me, Muhammad Ahmed. Who will be remembered from Khartoum? They want him to arrange an evacuation. Gordon agrees, but also decides to defend the city against the forces of Mohammed Ahmed El Mahdi, or Sir Lawrence Olivier, the expected one. Welcome, Khartoum Pasha. Come in peace. How did this come to you? 
It came to you with the greetings of your friend far down the river, Sheikh Ali Ibrahim of the Manasir people. Sheikh Ali Ibrahim has been induced by my friend and great emir, Muhammad El Khair, to acknowledge me as the expected one, the true Mahdi. And he tries to get the British to commit troops. Doesn't really work, right? After political machinations in London and black marketers in Khartoum, Gordon, or in this case, Charlton Heston, is going nuts trying to save the city. As expected, he fails. And after a great river battle and an excellent Arab siege, Khartoum falls and Gordon is killed. This is one of those almost perfect movies for colonial war gamers for three reasons. Here we go. Number one, there is an amazing attention to the detail of the uniforms. The Arab forces are outfitted perfectly. The British camel units are spot on. The Egyptian army is uniformed correctly. If you want to save money and time researching uniforms for North Africa or the Sudan, this is the movie. No need for a book. Just watch this. Number two, the scenics are spot on. The town of Khartoum is so well put together. The colors, the architecture is just perfect. The buildings, the terrain, fairly simple to recreate as well. You feeling me? Number three, there are several scenarios you can derive from this movie. The opening battle around the watering hole. The siege of Khartoum. The battle on the river. The skirmish with the camel troops. And the dawn attack while Gordon is driving cattle back to Khartoum. Just three reasons why this movie is perfect for the colonial war gamer. So if you're new to colonial war gaming, then in my opinion, the 1966 classic Khartoum is a perfect movie for you to have in your collection. I give it five pith helmets. That, that's by the way, that's my new scale. Uh, one pith helmet, not so good. Two pith helmets, okay. Three pith helmets, decent. Four pith helmets, really good. Five pith helmets, excellent and a must see. And Khartoum is a five pith helmet movie. Scott has spoken. <laughs> this is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions and you'll just have to accept them. And the Lord spake saying, shalt thou count to three? No more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count Neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. It is time for the top five reveal. Five is right up. Now, before I announce our new top five, if you have a suggestion for a top five, you can send it to me via DM on, on Facebook or on Twitter or email me at shotshield at gmail.com. I'm up for suggestions. If you, if you got something, let me know. You know, let's bring it. Bring it, right? So in the new top five for April, I was inspired by Edgar and Damien, who I conversed with in my last bonus episode as they spoke about their new rule set, Blood and Steel, from Firelock Games. And as I'm recording right now, the game is on pre-sale at the Firelock Game website. And please, if you have not done so, go listen to that bonus. You can hear the excitement in Damien and Edgar's voice as they talk about Blood and Steel. It is, it's intoxicating. 
But before you go and get that rule set, before you go and get blood and steel and get it in your little grubby hands, I want to know what is your current rule set of choice for colonial or 19th century wargaming? Let me repeat. What is your current rule set of choice for colonial and 19th century wargaming? Here are my starters. The men who would be kings. Sharp's practice. The sword and the flame. Black powder. Or maybe you prefer your house rules. It's okay. Put it on there. There's your starters, but please feel free to add anything you use. So the top five question on Facebook and Twitter is, what is your current rule set of choice for colonial and 19th century wargaming? So get your vote in today and hear the results on the next Shot and Shield Supercast on Twitter at Shot and Shield and in the Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, oh, honor is satisfied. God clearly preserves you for greatness. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. It's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. Thank you, thank you, thank you for continuing to listen to the Shot and Shield Supercast. I'm your audio archaeologist, Dr. Phineas J. Scott. And in this episode of the Supercast, I have found a fake news classic. You are there. The Battle of the Alamo. The You Are There series was really sweet uh, by going back and retelling historical events. And they were doing that as if it were reported for the first time. So please enjoy the Alamo. You are there. This is John Daly on a little sagebrush-covered mesa overlooking the mission Alamo. The besieged and completely surrounded garrison of free Texans, less than 200 men, are still blocking the advance of Santa Ana's 3,000 Mexican troops into the heart of free Texas. They still hold out. But it may be that on this morning of March 6th, 1836, Santa Ana's troops will storm forward in their final all-out attack. For a short while ago, Santa Ana's cannon, which for 11 days have kept up a relentless bombardment of the Alamo, suddenly ceased firing. And there are signs of activity in the Mexican lines. Couriers began to dash to and from Santa Ana's headquarters. The Alamo, March 6th, 1836. CBS is there. The defense of the Alamo. CBS asks you to imagine that our microphone is present at this unforgettable moment of Texas history. All things are as they were then, 
except for one thing. CBS is there. This broadcast, the sixth in a special summer series produced and directed for Columbia by Robert Lewis Shayon, is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now, the Alamo, March 6th, 1836, and John Daly. Just before us, we wonder, as the whole world wonders, what is going on inside the Alamo. The little mission which looks like a brown roosting hen, its head the bell tower and its body the rectangular stockade that stretches back from the mission proper, is ominously quiet. Our CBS mobile unit is outside the Mexican lines and about a half a mile away from the Alamo. The Mexicans have taken no notice of our unit since they first questioned us when we arrived on the scene. The fact that the United States is officially neutral in this revolt of the Texas patriots against the Santa Ana government still protects us and permits us to continue our observation and reports without let or hindrance. No military action in all history can be compared to this siege. These men, these Texans, could have escaped. They had full warning of Santa Ana's approach with his army of 3,000. But they chose to stand because they knew that unless Santa Ana was stopped, if only for a few precious days, unless his relentless march was stalled, all of free Texas would fall before the invaders. Of course, it's still possible that the Alamo may be relieved. It's still possible that reinforcements may come. Involuntarily, we keep staring toward the east. Along the road, relief may come, must come, if it is to come. A road swept by a cold March wind. Actually, we know that the chances for relief are so small as to be practically non-existent. These Texans, these farm boys and trappers and cattle racers, these lads who a few weeks ago were plowing fields and milking cows, have almost overnight become soldiers. And meanwhile, one of the most puzzling aspects of the situation has been the continued silence of the portable radio transmitter we know to be inside the Alamo. Our technicians have been on the alert constantly, day and night, but so far we have not been able to get any signal from within the walls. Meantime, the panorama of battle stretches out before us. It looks like some toy battlefield, but we know it is real. The bodies of white-clad Mexican soldiers sprawled on the ground are real. The red blood flag denoting no quarter flies from Santa Ana's lines. Soldiers always say that waiting is worse than battle. We know what they mean now, but we will wait here. And this is John Daly returning you to the temporary capital of this infant nation, Washington on the Brazos, and Ken Roberts. This is Ken Roberts inside the small, rude, unpainted building which houses the Free Texas Convention, or Consultation, as it is called. That cold March wind John Daly spoke about is blowing on the browsers, too. And the windows of the building have been covered with canvas in an attempt to hold out the cold. The convention, which is working on the Free Texas Constitution, is in recess. Most of the delegates are standing about in small, solemn groups. They're talking quietly and soberly of the news they've just heard from John Daly. The news that the final all-out attack on the Alamo may be impending. Mrs. Eliza Benson, who lives in the neighborhood, is here with me now. She has kindly consented to answer a few questions. Mrs. Benson, I understand you have a son with Lieutenant Colonel Travis at the Alamo. Yes, I have, Mr. Roberts. Well, how long has he been in the Army? Oh, not long. Two weeks, maybe. We only been in Texas all told less than three months. Where did you come from, Mrs. Benson? From Indian Territory, out near Independence Way. See, uh, we had a few acres that Sam, my husband, bought from the land office. Uh Uh-huh. And the Indians come and... Sam was killed. We didn't have anything, not even a wagon. So I took my boy, Philip, and we walked down here. 250 miles. Sure was a long walk. Yes, it must have been. And now you have a home here in Texas? Well, we got some acreage near Goliath. But just when Philip was getting set to put in a crop, all this trouble started. All the young men went into the army, and Philip, he went too. Do you think those boys, 
Philip and the others will be able to hold off Santa Anna? Well, I didn't know anything about that. Philip is where God put him. Not for his mother or anyone else to decide such questions. But I know the men who are with him. Billy Travis, Colonel Boyd, David Crockett, and the other lads from our little town, other towns in Texas. They'll be doing what they should be doing. They'll be brave. Thank you, Mr. Benson. I wish you could see these faces around me now. They're American faces. Wind-bitten and square-jawed. The language is the language of the Tennessee hills, the Mohawk Valley, the farmlands, the old frontiers, the places you and I know. Although until four days ago, when the Texas Declaration of Independence was signed, this land had been politically foreign, it has long been culturally and physically allied to the United States. These people, these Texans, are the cousins and the brothers and the husbands of our own families. They are our kin. For example, the Texan, the typical Texan, who's standing at our CBS microphone now. He's a tall, bony figure of a man in buckskin breeches and homespun shirt. He's grinning at the description. What is your name, sir? Uh, Smithwick. Noah Smithwick. And where is your home, Mr. Smithwick? Well, I got a parcel out uh, San Felipe way. Well, where was your home before you came to Texas, Mr. Smithwick? Uh, Kentucky. Hopkinsville. And uh, what brought you to Texas? Well, I reckon the same thing that brought the others. A chance to own some land, new start. Maybe just a kind of itch to haul up anchor and see some new ports. <laughs> you talk like a Navy man. Well, uh, I was one during the war against England. 1812. I see. Yeah. Uh, gunner's mate on a good old constitution. Ironside, that was. Uh-huh. Yeah, I uh, came home after the war and... Uh, Kind of couldn't get used to things, you know. And a uh, fellow come through town, he talked mighty big about this here place called Texas and said it's how uh, old Moses Austin got himself a whopping big grand of land and was often uh, farmland and uh, some uh, 400 acres of pasture to folks who would come down this way. So I uh, pack up my kit and caboodle and come down. Well, did you get all that was promised to you, Mr. Smithwick? Oh, uh, uh, I've got some. <laughs> well, is Texas what you expected it to be? Well, uh, I reckon it's a mite different from what we was told it would be. Uh, how's that, sir? Well, uh, this fellow who signed us up, he's a tolerable good liar, you know. Liar? Yeah. Uh, he said that there'd be no taxes, and he said it's how the country was so full of game. Now, <laughs> get this. Wild horses turkey and buffalo that uh, all one would have to do to get a meal is pitch a bowie knife over his left shoulder. <laughs> and uh, he, he said is how when you planted corn, you'd have to back up real fast so the stalk wouldn't bash in the chin coming up. <laughs> it's a terrible good lie. <laughs> well, Mr. Smithwick, yeah. how do you feel about what the boys at the Alamo are doing? Holding off Santa Ana, I mean. Giving Texas time. Oh, well, uh, I, I tell you, I figure this way, uh, uh, Mr. Roberts, that's your name, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, those, um, those boys, uh, they kind of uh, calculated what the situation was and did what they figured was needed. And uh, it, it's a right uh, grand thing they're doing, and we ain't forgetting that either. Those boys know what they're fighting for. Yes, I guess uh, they do. So we, we we got no more reason to be part of Mexico than we uh, has to be part of China, you know? How's that, Mr. Smithwick? Well, we don't speak the same language, think the same way, and uh, that, that ain't all. We've been doing our best, you know, to mind our own business, asking precious little. But now what's happened? Well, I tell you, Steve Austin goes down to Mexico City to speak our cause, 
and Santa Ana smacks him into a dungeon for almost a year. Right. Now tell me, is that how free citizens get treated in a decent country? Oh, I guess it is. No, you guess right. We ask for schools for our kids and, and little things like trial by a jury and the right to speak a piece when we're in a mind to speak. Now I know. See, I know what the talk is, is how we're all of us here, nothing but a fool of pirates, ruffians, how to stir up trouble. Well, that just ain't so. We're plain, ordinary clock here. Excuse me, Mr. Wickwick. Our rider is just out of the convention hall. Oh, the clothes are taking much. He looks tired. He looks like he's written a long way and written hard. The men are crowding around him now, but he's pushing his way through to the dead. I'm going to try to get up to him. One side, please. Would you step aside, please? Get off that table. Please, let me through. Please. Where's the rider, sir? Where is he from? of the Army of Texas. On the 23rd of February, the enemy in large force entered the city of San Antonio de Bexar, which could not be prevented as I had not sufficient force to defend my, my position. Uh, Colonel Batras, the adjutant major of the President General Santa Ana, demanded a surrender at discretion, calling us foreign rebels. I answered them with a cannon shot. The enemy... The enemy commenced a bombardment with a five-inch howitzer, which, together with heavy cannonade, has been kept up incessantly ever since. I instantly sent express to Colonel Fannin at Goliath and to the people of Gonzales and San Felipe. Our numbers are few. And I have every reason to expect an attack from the whole force of the enemy very soon. But I shall hold to the last extremity, hoping to secure reinforcements in a day or two. Do hasten on aid to me as rapidly as possible, as from the superior number of the enemy, it would be impossible for us to keep them out much longer. If they overpower us, we fall a sacrifice at the shrine of our country, and we hope posterity in our country will do our memory justice. Give me help, for my country, victory or death. Signed, W.B. Travis, Lieutenant Colonel. So ends the dispatch. There it is. There you have it. The first official word of the situation within the Alamo. I hope you heard it as Mr. Ellis read it to the delegates here at Washington on the Brazos this morning of March 6, 1836. 
Although the dispatch confirms everything, John Daly has been able to report to you from the CBS mobile unit. Although most of the information contained in the dispatch is already known, still this is the first official word that has come through from the Alamo itself since it was besieged 11 days ago. While the dispatch was defiant, almost heroic, its meaning is clear. The situation was desperate then when there was still hope for reinforcements, and is even more desperate now that hope is dim. Mr. Ellis, General Houston, and some of the delegates have been holding a consultation. Mr. Ellis is calling to order again. General Houston, I will now give you your orders. As Commander-in-Chief of the Texas Army, you're ordered forthwith to repair to such place on the frontier as you may deem advisable. You will proceed to establish headquarters and organize an army, and you will require all officers of the army of whatever grade to report to you. And, uh, as it is uh, impossible at this time to determine any particular line of action, you will act according to the emergencies of the occasion and the best dictates of your own judgment for the purpose of protecting our frontier and advancing the best interests of our country. Thank you, sir. Good day. Tell us anything about your plans. It is my intention to fight Santa Ana. But are you ready, sir? Is Texas ready to challenge to fight the immense army of Santa Ana? When is Texas not ready to fight? What about the Alamo, General Houston? Can you tell us anything about the Alamo? Colonel Travis and his boys are standing at the Alamo for one purpose. To give me time to organize a defense against Santa Ana. They saw their duty. They did not waver. I will not waver in mine. Can you give us a message to the American people, General Houston? Yes. You heard the dispatch from Colonel Travis. He said, give me help, oh my country. Well, I say, volunteers from the United States for the Army of Texas will be welcomed. I say to all red-blooded Americans, come to Texas. Come with a good rifle. And come soon. In the name of the men of the Alamo, liberty or death. Thank you, General Tom Houston, Commander-in-Chief of the Army of Texas. The general is leaving the building now, surrounded by the delegates. These people have placed their highest hopes in Sam Houston, the tight-lipped, broad-shouldered ex-governor from Tennessee, upon whose military skill their very lives are now dependent. Undoubtedly, the events that have happened here in the last few minutes have given John Daly, our CBS correspondent near the Alamo, the first official news of the situation inside the mission. So now, John Daly. I heard some faint sounds from the shortwave transmitter inside the Alamo. The couriers behind Santa Ana's lines have disappeared. The silence has deepened. The wind continues to howl and the first rays of the sun are now beginning to streak the battlefield before me. I can't tell you how deeply all of us here were moved by the reading of the message from Colonel Travis. As we heard his words, we were able to look down on the mission to see the pitiful inadequacy of its defenses. Less than 200 men against 3,000. The odds are staggering, and they become epic when you stop to think that they were chosen by the less than 200. I keep watching that road over which reinforcements must come. There's no sign of help, but there is something coming through by shortwave from the Alamo. We have a shortwave receiver tuned to their frequency, and the signal is clear. Let's listen to it. Lieutenant Colonel Travis, our garrison commander, has a message. Here is Lieutenant Colonel Travis. To the people of Texas, 
all Americans in the world. Fellow citizens and compatriots, I have sustained a bombardment and a continual cannonade for many days, and I've not lost a man. I shall never surrender or retreat. I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. This is the Alamo. This is the Alamo. That was the commander of our garrison, Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis, appealing for reinforcements. I hope we're getting through. I hope you heard the colonel, because we sure need those reinforcements. Now, here's the Honorable Davy Crockett. He wants to say a word. Howdy. Can't talk long, because it looks like we got a little excitement here about. Some of you folks are wondering what an ex-congressman is doing down here in San Antonio. Well, I had a bit of a difference of opinion with my constituents back home in Tennessee. I told them that if they didn't re-elect me, they might all go to places, and I'd go to Texas. Here I am. And here's where every freedom-loving man ought to be. I'm proud to identify myself with the fighting men of Texas. I consider it a rare honor to be able to defend in company with my fellow citizens, the liberties of our common country. That was the Honorable Davy Crockett talking to the people of the United States of America. Where are you, lad? You coming? We're waiting on you. This is the Alamo. This is the Alamo. Hope we're getting through. I reckon you folks might, might like to know how we're making out here. Well, we, we got thieves enough, corn enough, and I ain't heard no complaining yet about the supply of liquid refreshments. It's, uh, it's quiet now. Too darn quiet to comfort it when you're asking me. Some of the boys are catching a little shut-eye at the post. And we made up that when the attack comes, uh, the bell here will be rung. And that'll be the alarm. Well, now, some of the boys got some messages there they want me to send, so here goes. Pinky Benedict says... But his wife not to worry, and maybe it'd be a good idea if she visited her sister in Memphis for a stretch. Wally Bradley, he says for his good brother to be sure he watches out for his traps, he said in the bayou, and to move him over to Short Creek for Beaver in about a month. Uh, now, this, this next one is kind of personal, so all you people listening, stop up here, see? It's from Dick Simon. He says to his wife that he sure loves her heap. And a kiss the baby for her. <laughs> kiss him for me too, Mom. Well, now that... That's all for now. This is the Alamo signing off. We'll try to get back on the air again soon. Signing off. Signing off. You have just heard the first radio message direct from the Alamo. The convention on the Brazos must have heard it also, so back to Convention Hall and Ken Roberts. The impact of the message from the Alamo on the delegates assembled here was profound. They gathered around the radio and hung on every word. 
Their faces reflected their anxiety, their anguish, their prayers for the boys at the Alamo. But they have not permitted their feelings to sway them from their determination to make Texas free. The delegates have taken up their new day's labor on the draft of the Constitution. They are determined that the time granted them by the stand at the Alamo must not be wasted. These few days of respite may mean the difference between victory for free Texas or death for its dream of independence. And help is on the way, we know that, as Travis and his men hold off Santa Ana on the western frontier. Volunteers from the United States are pouring in from the east. They're coming, they're on the march. Men from Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, and Indiana. Men from Maine and New York and Massachusetts. Right at this moment, a transport loaded with troops headed for Texas is about to pull out from a wharf somewhere in Louisiana. For an on-the-spot description of the embarkment of these volunteers, we take you now to Jackson Beck. Jackson Beck on the wharf in Louisiana. A crack regiment of militia, Colonel Thomas Watson commanding, is aboard ship and ready to sail for Texas. There's a band here on the deck serenading the boys, and hundreds of people have turned out to see them all. I'm not permitted to give you their exact number, but I can tell you that the number is not meager, and the men are packed with fight. For the past few days, ever since news of Santa Ana's advance and the siege of the Alamo reached New Orleans, an air of wild excitement has spread over the city. Though the United States government maintains a strict policy of official neutrality, it is inevitable that the natural sympathy for the American colonists in Texas should be translated into action. Enlistment officers are on every street corner. The role of volunteers swells every hour. Uh, beside me now is the man who commands this detachment, Colonel Tom Watson. Colonel Watson, it looks like your men are anxious to get to Texas. Anxious? If that steamboat don't sail fast enough, I reckon as well they'll get out and swim. We're all anxious. We're proud to be able to lend a helping hand to our brothers of Texas. To fight for freedom, sir, is man's greatest privilege. If the boys at the Alamo are listening, here's our message to them. We are coming. We are marching to Texas. Victory or death. Thank you, Colonel Watson. There goes the ship bell. Ready to fly. Colonel Watson's going aboard. The effect of the crowd is now at peak level. The lines have been thrown off. There's the ship's whistle. The big side wheel is beginning to turn. You can probably hear it. Flashing the water as the ship gets underway. Now the crowd's going stark raving crazy. This is the CBS studio in Washington, Alabrazos. We have interrupted Jackson Deck because we have a report of action at the Alamo. We take you now to John Daly. Santa Ana has begun the attack on the Alamo. The Alamo bells are sounding the alarm. The Mexican bugles are calling for the charge. We can see it all. It's like a play on a stage spread out before our eyes. The Mexican infantry dragging escalates to scale the walls is pouring over the little patch of ground that has separated the Alamo from the Mexican forces. They've been met with a withering fire from the Texans' rifles and small cannons. But although Santa Ana's men are falling like flies, they're still pressing forward. The ground is covered with bodies. The Mexican losses will be terrific no matter what the outcome. But no one can doubt their bravery. Some of the escalades are against the walls of the Alamo now. But as far as I can see, not a single Mexican has yet been able to scale them. The smoke and the dust of battle has settled like a pall on this bloody scene. We can hear gunfire, the shouts of officers, the moans and the screams of the wounded. It's a ghastly, horrible glamour of blood and war. There seems to be some slackening of fire from within the Alamo. And Mexican troops have rallied and are starting the walls once again. They're up on the escalades. I think they've mounted the ladders and are getting inside the Alamo. But there's so much smoke and dust, it's impossible to be sure. Here come the Mexican cavalry. About a thousand horsemen, they're charging across the field. Their sabers are glittering in the sun. 
And that was You Are There, The Alamo, from 1947, which, I, you know, I got to tell you, I feel they did a pretty good job capturing the news of the event. I normally wouldn't have put this, uh, put this on, considering I did a watch-along with The Last Battle of the Alamo in a past episode. It was just in the last couple months. But uh, I thought because they did a really nice job, and I wanted to balance out the program a little bit. I thought, uh, you know, playing this sort of westerny type uh, drama with this news flavor might be interesting uh, as well. So there you go. Your audio archaeological find today, the Alamo, you are there on this edition of the Shot and Shield Supercast. Finally, I would like to thank Grinder Scene Man for the inspiration behind this episode's scenario builder. Grinder is the director of the Sikh Museum Initiative, and his most recent publication is The British and the Sikhs, Discovery, Warfare, Friendship, 1700-1900, found on Hellion & Company Publishers website. You can also listen to our full conversation in the bonus episode from last month. Search it out. It is a riveting talk, and if you haven't already listened, I ask you to do so. It is nice. I would also like to thank Craig Thompson for joining me today, and you can follow him on Twitter, at TinyTerrain, as he updates his World War I in Persia project, which I got to tell you, I think is awesome. And I love the plates he did. And I did ask him to post the unique painting plates that he made up on the Shot and Shield uh, Wargaming Podcast group Facebook page. Um, and they're already pinned. They're there and already pinned and uh, getting a bunch of likes because it is it is outstanding. It, it 
it gives us all something to think about when we're doing our painting. Also, as I did last episode, I hope all of our friends in the Ukraine are safe and okay. And I do want to shout out again uh, to our uh, friends at Mini Art Models and uh, our friends at Stretlets and the, the listeners uh, from Ukraine uh, to the Supercast here. Really hope that you're okay, you found a safe place to be, and that everything's going to just level out and you're going to get back to your life and, uh, and back to your painting and back to your gaming and, 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 and just having... Uh, the best life you possibly can. So really, I hope all of you in Ukraine are safe if you're listening to this uh, Supercast. If you're not, I totally understand. I know you got better things to do. I really do. So, but please be safe. And with that said, you're listening in where we slip England, Modesto, California, and Wellington, New Zealand to the Shot and Shield Supercast. I am the Grand Duke Scott, and I'm out. Remember, it's just the same here as anywhere else in the world. Everything has a price. So pay your money and don't expect any free samples. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity. Your electricity.